0: ...for our scripture reading this morning. Exodus chapter 15. And these are the words of the one and only God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord... ...saying, I will sing to the Lord... For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sink like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in In glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Elisha. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Tear and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord "'will reign forever and ever. "'For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, "'the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. "'But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. "'Then Miriam the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, "'and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. "'And Miriam sang to them, "'Sing to the Lord.' For he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Well, the grass withers, and the flower fades. For the word of the Lord, stand us well let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father. You are majestic in your holiness. You are the great man of war. You are the very God who tests man to see what is in him. And so here we are, your people, the sheep of your pasture. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, to behold the glory of your Son, and so be like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We may be seated. Well, if you had asked me, uh, as a child, for my favorite genre of movie, of film, that would have posed a most difficult question to answer. If I would have had to think through, carefully, slapstick comedies, epic war movies, all the great movies of superheroes and space adventures, maybe even needing to consider drama with all its development of plot and character. But a much easier question to answer would have been, what is your least favorite category of movie? Because that would not even take a moment of reflection to answer with conviction that my least favorite category of movie is none other than the dreaded musical. (laughs) I say that because as a child, what struck me was the sheer oddity, even the absurdity, The characters are just going about their daily life to then suddenly, spontaneously burst into song. It just did not seem to sync up with the normal human experience to pause and punctuate reality with song. It was only until much later, much older, maybe wiser, I came to realize how faintly, maybe weakly, the musical was tapping into a much deeper, much more profound truth. And that is that mankind sings because he has to. Mankind is a worshiping creature, and he can and he must worship something or someone. That if even the hills sing, how much more does man? I trust you see this morning that we have that reality in its truest form. That Israel crosses over the Red Sea and spontaneously burst into song and adoration and praise to the God who has just redeemed them. And then sadly, this holy musical of sorts turns to tragedy as the test that follows produces not worship, but the grumbling of God's people. And so we'll walk through this text in two simple portions, looking at the Lord's song, followed by the Lord's test. And all of it funneling to the main point, which is simply that Christians are to praise God in both triumph and testing. Praise God both in triumph and, perhaps we should say, especially in times of testing. So firstly, the Lord's test. But before we even get to the song itself, you'll notice this all-important word, then, in verse 1. As in, then, Moses and the people sang this song. And I draw our attention to that word because it reminds us of where we are in the story. That a dramatic conflict has just occurred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that the same waters that drowned Egypt are the very same waters that have saved Israel. And if you look at the previous chapter, chapter 14, and just look at that last verse, you'll notice. It is only after they saw, after they feared, and after they believed. Only then. Are they ready to sing this song? In other words, this song is rightly understood as nothing other than a response. It's this holy reaction of praise to God and for what God has done. A pattern we find all throughout scripture. That Deborah bursts into song at the defeat of Jabin. That Mary's Magnificat is a response to the angel's good news. That Hannah worships at the provision of Samuel. And I trust you know that is the same reality for us as we gather together corporately this morning that we sing to our great God because of who he is and what he has done in our lives. Now having seen that Israel sang, let us look at what they sang. Let's look at the content of the song. And you'll see the focus of the song is very simple. It is very much who God is and what God has done. Who God is and what God has performed. Even as the first line indicates, stating I will sing to the Lord is the direction. And why? Why am I singing to the Lord? For he has triumphed gloriously. And the rest of the song is really just expanding on those two points. Who God is and what God has done. But I do think there is an all-important tangent to be noticed. Lest we dare think that this song is just... Rote memorization, just a dispassionate exercise of listing off some things about God and God's accomplishment. We find instead this intensely personal, intimate nature of worship that you can hear with the peppering of the personal pronoun my throughout verses two through three. That this is not just some God or a God, but this is my strength and my song and my salvation. Verse 3, imagine thousands of men in baritone unison. They're belting out, my God, even my Father's God. What an awesome sight to behold. Kids, your parents have probably corrected you, admonished you if you are all too often using the word my. They might say, too much me, 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 too much mine, mine, mine out of you for today. Well, kids, no, here's the one case where it is always best, and you can never say mine too much or too often when you are saying my God and my Savior and the gospel is my gospel. And how strengthening it must have been to say my God over and over because of what comes next in verse three. That what is revealed to them that my God just so happens to be the divine warrior. As verse three reads, God is a man of war. This is after all what they just witnessed, miraculously. Put it this way, just imagine if I said to you, who is going to win in a fight between a mom carrying a baby in her arms, walking on foot, who is going to win in that fight between her and a trained elite Egyptian soldier? With armor and weaponry, ten times out of ten, who wins between mom versus the commando? Unless, unless a man of war intervenes. I trust you can see that is why in the Song of Moses you don't hear of any medal of honor or a bronze star or even a purple heart awarded to the Israelites for they have done nothing but faithfully walk There is no self-congratulation because the battle belongs entirely to the Lord. This is what makes the triumph of God so glorious. Verse 1, that word glorious is actually not even in the original. It's just repeated twice as if to say God has triumphantly triumphed to so emphasize that if the man of war had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up alive. Christian, could you praise God? God, the man of war. And if that be unsettling to you, take it as a great comfort. I mean, think with me for a moment. If God no longer was a man of war, if God sheathed his sword, as it were, and you were left on your own to battle your sin, on your own to wrestle against dark spiritual forces, on your own to engage the world, your flesh, Satan, in mortal combat to see if you could prevail in your own strength. And that is why all the more Christians praise God, the man of war. We get next, though, this great debriefing as to how this man of war fights. We might say of a, a good fighter, of a good boxer, you might hear it say, hey, watch out for his right hand. Watch out for his right hook, as a way of denoting how he exercises or manifests his power. And you see that very thing in verse 6 as it reads, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand shatters the enemy. And so, while broader evangelicalism might be singing sappy, sentimental love songs to Jesus, meek and mild, here the song of Moses praises God for shattering his enemies, with his right hand. Which, of course, is simply an Old Testament way to refer to Christ upon his throne. You might remember Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This verb referring to shattering, same verb in Psalm 2, speaking of the Son of God begotten who will rule the nations and shatter his enemies with a rod of iron. And what do we learn from this? But that God... Manifest, exercises fully his power in and through the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does Revelation 19 depict and say? But that in righteousness he, that is Jesus, judges and makes war. That he comes upon his war horse with a sword in his mouth. Treading out the winepress of the fury of God. And so let us all the more praise God his name has not changed. He is evermore the man of war today, and he has tossed not simply the rider into the sea, but he has tossed our sins into the sea. And he has tossed not simply a chariot into the sea, but will toss death and Hades itself into the sea that he might be all in all. And so if you are here this morning and weak and weary and discouraged and tired and scared, take great heart that the song of Moses is the song of the Lamb. And the enthroned Christ is our great man of war who will put every enemy underfoot. And on that note, just one more quick tangent, if I could address our our sisters in particular. Lest I dare cast all this talk of God, the man of war, and combat and battle as only testosterone-inducing fun, notice, quickly skip to verse 20, that you see Miriam and all the women in Antiphany sing the very same song, and they affirm the very same truth, God's word for God's people. And additionally, notice that Scripture, unlike our confused world, truly, correctly celebrates masculine and feminine characteristics. Just as a side, you might notice in verse 20 that as the women are performing this song specifically, they do so with tambourines and with dancing. Implication, the men are not doing this. And so in other words, they affirm the same truth and the same praise, but do so with a different adornment that beautifies and enhances it. In a word, you could say they complement or they complete what the men are doing with an overall net effect of greater glorification. All of God's word for all of God's people. And in opposition to that, to God's people, you see next the unbridled arrogance of the enemy. Remember, the song begins with my God, my strength, my song. Now here, verse nine, as the enemy boasts. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I will draw my sword and destroy them. You see the insanity of depravity, the madness of rebellion, that man, in his pride, truly believes that his way is right, though it ends in death. Determined that his ways will prevail. And though you see it is the mere breath of God's wind that brings them to naught, as verse 10 says. And so if you're here this morning and, and not a Christian, perhaps a most important question to ask yourself this morning is, how do you use the pronoun My. But there's a very real sense in which there are ultimately only two ways to use that word. You could either say, life is my life to live, and my ways are right, and I must be true to myself, and I must believe in myself. Or into the gospel, you could surrender your pronoun and say, God is my God and my strength, and he has become my salvation. By simple faith in Jesus Christ, my Savior. And so stark is this contrast between man and God and victory and defeat that it it builds to this summit, to this mountain that comes next in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? With the clear answer being, no one in heaven above and earth beneath And you'll see it explains why God is so incomparable. His deeds are awesome. He performs wondrous things, yes, but let us dare not skip over that before we're told of what God does, we're told of who he is. Before we're told of these deeds and these awesome works, just notice verse 11 begins, revealing God is majestic in holiness. The great Augustine tells this story of A little boy who's perched uh, at the sea bank and the little boy is trying to scoop the sea out with a spoon. And the point of the story is that the boy is actually an angel and the angel is making fun of theologians who think that they can plumb the depths of who God is and just how majestic he is. That you would have a better chance of scooping out the ocean with a spoon. I do say that is how I felt about that, that verse all week. That God is so infinitely majestic and possessing a greatness entirely his own with a perfection that is without comparison. That there is a sense in which you cannot even say that God is the best. For that implies that he is the top of his class, that he is the best out of a group of people or gods. And the song of Moses is proclaiming, God is not the best out of anything. He is in a class of one entirely without equal, and there is none like him. Which is why verse 11 proclaims how God is majestic. He is majestic in holiness. It was Thomas Watson who said, the holiness of God is the most sparkling jewel of his crown. Many theologians have said holiness is not so much an attribute of God's as it is his consummate perfection in everything that he is that his love is holy love, his justice is holy, holy justice, his grace, holy grace, as we see that holy, holy, holy is the only thing spoken threefold of our great God. And how important to see in a passage of wrath, of fury, and anger, that such things are far from imperfections are a direct function of God's holiness and his moral purity That this is not the anger of a fickle, petty, pagan God. Rather, God in his greatness and majesty overthrows his enemies. I trust you see once again, that is what makes the statement, my God, such an amazing statement. That this God who is high and majestic and holy is the same God who is near to the lowly and the contrite. Even as verse 13 continues, not not only that he is near to us, that he even leads us. As verse 13 says, you have led your people. And how? In steadfast love. Of recent, there seems to be no shortage of leadership talk in the business world. Go by any bookstore, in any uh, airport newsstand, and you will see, no doubt, book after book on leadership. How to be an effective leader, a good leader, lead with conviction, lead with passion. But I dare say what you won't see is leadership that is marked by unfailing, steadfast, covenant love. Have you given thought to that today, Christian? That God is your shepherd leader. That he leads and guides his people. That whatever trial you are in, whatever suffering you are in, you can be assured that your God guides you with jealous love as we march to Zion. And that is the very assurance that is unfolded next, as you see verses 14 through 16. This word gets out to the surrounding nations, nations like Moab and Edom and Canaan, and they begin to tremble when they hear this news. They think, if God can do that to mighty Pharaoh and mighty Pharaoh's armies, what chance do we have to stand? And you see this partially fulfilled in the book of Judges. You might remember Rahab conversing with those Israelite spies. She tells them, oh yeah, we've heard about you guys. And our hearts are melting in fear. And I do believe this reminds us as to why our great God fights. That God is no mercenary. That his war is always a just war. That God is not bought with sacrifices or offerings. Instead, God is the one who buys and purchases a people. And Christian, you can know in your heart of hearts that the same reason God fight for Israel solely because they are his covenant people is ever true for you today. That your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, fights and rules over you with steadfast love as your king. Well, there is a word on what is perhaps the greatest song in all the Old Testament. And great not for its melody, great not for its catchiness, great not for its mode of thrill, but great because it exalts God so greatly. And that is perhaps what makes our second portion of Scripture so painful to read as we look now at the Lord's test. As we wince to see how Israel could be so full of gratitude at one point and so quickly full of grumbling in the next point As you see, verses 22 through 24, they journey three days into the wilderness. They arrive at Mara, which means bitter, and because of the bitter, undrinkable water, they respond with grumbling. Moses, what shall we drink? And we are told specifically, verse 25, this is, of course, no accident. This is the Lord's test. Unless we flatter ourselves, surely it's not too hard to trace your life unto their life. And how quickly we might have a bout of sinful amnesia, forgetting what God has done in our lives, forgetting the majesty of God, blinded we are by present circumstances, and we grumble. Grumbling, I fear, is one of those sins that is so common, so tolerated, that at times it does not even prick our conscience. That we treat it as part of the normal human experience, Bad day at the office, bad day at school, bad night of sleep. Why wouldn't I complain? In fact, it's not complaining, it is venting. I saw a recent personal inventory form that I think illustrated the danger of it in that it asked individuals to score themselves on things like rate your physical health, rate your financial health, rate your emotional health. But what caught my eye was this most American category that read please rate your, quote, spirituality forward slash happiness as if the two are one in the same thing. Have you ever been trapped in that mentality? Perhaps so too is Israel. And we see the problem is not the bitter water, but the bitterness of their hearts. For grumbling truly is the murmur of unbelief. That it expresses that I forget all that God has done in the past. I deny all that God is doing now. I distrust all that God will do in the future. And my contentment in some measure is not found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to grumble. And instead, what are we called to? But as Ephesians says, to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, always and for everything. Now, let me anticipate an objection. Maybe you're saying, hey, look, these Israelites, (laughs) they're complaining about water after a three-day's journey into the wilderness. This is no first-world complaint. They're not saying, hey, the Internet is down. I can't stream TV. No, they're saying, we need water in order to live. And maybe you've rubbed up against the similar thought How do I give thanks always and for everything when losing my job? How do I give thanks always amidst a chronic disease? How do I give thanks always and for everything if one of my children is wayward? But let us remember that God's testing is always the kindest of tests. It is always a refining fire. That such is the nature of fire that can either consume or refine, destroy or purify in the believer's great confidence is, is that it is always the latter. That as 1 Peter says, though you are grieved in your sufferings, recognizing the pain of suffering, though you are grieved, the tested genuineness of your faith results in praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ. If I could take but just a trivial example, say that on the way home today, I bust and get a, I get a flat tire, and I get out to fix the flat t- tire. Now, I could, if I'm thinking like an atheist, I could get out and think, all I've got to do now is fix this blasted, broken tire that is nothing more than an inconvenience and an irritation spawned by a random world of molecules, and that is the last of it, or equipped by the promises of God, I am to know that as I am working on the tire, while I work on the tire, God is working on me to make me maybe just one degree more patient, more tolerable, more enduring, in a word, one degree closer to Jesus Christ. And so indeed, whether it is a broken tire, a broken dream, a broken body, every trial, can be calculated as a joy because every trial produces Christ-likeness. Have you remembered that? Or maybe in your trials you're thinking, the only thing that comes out of my bitterness is more bitterness. And the only thing that can come out of grief is more grief and more pain. Christian, I do want you to see how in Christ, out of bitterness comes sweetness notice Moses prays firstly secondly verse 25 notice God shows Moses literally in Hebrew a tree and Moses hurls this tree which turns out to be a tree of life and out of bitter water comes sweet drinkable life-saving water not new water But out of bitter water, God transforms it miraculously into sweet, life-giving water. I hope we see that with our New Testament eyes, our hearts are directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is out of the bitter cries of Calvary. It is out of drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath that comes salvation, salvation. It is the cursed tree that is a tree of life for the Christian. And that does mean for us that our testing is never in vain. And that God takes the most bitter of trials and tests and transforms them into trophies of his grace. And that is what he's doing for Israel. That is not enough for them to leave Egypt, they must also cling to God. That the fullness of salvation is not merely just freedom from slavery. They must also be a holy people. And thus, God tests them. And that is the pattern all throughout Exodus. It is testing not to be redeemed, but testing for the already redeemed. And you see, this bitter water is just a stepping stone unto holiness. For verse 26 comes the formal test. If you give ear to my commandments, keep my statutes... I will not put the Egyptian plagues upon you, for I am already, I am already your healer. And that same pattern of piety is true of the New Testament. That love for Jesus Christ, love for Jesus Christ, looks like, takes the shape of the keeping of his commandments. That we are enrolled in the school of Christ with every exam, every quiz. Learning the love of Christ. And that is their test, and that is our test. Will it be grumbling or gratitude? Will it be by sight or by faith? Will it be live by circumstances or live by covenant? And that is why in our testing, we do not look inward. We do not look to Moses even. We look to the one who was tested, tested by Satan in the wilderness. Tested by the betrayal of his friends. Tested by the conspiracy against him. Tested to shrink back from drinking the cup of God's wrath. Tested in every way, yet without sin. And that when tested, he is able and will sympathize with you in your weakness. Christian, the simple truth is, you will be tested if you have not been so already. And God tests the heart of man to know what is in him. But unlike any test you've ever taken, the same one who gives the test is also the same one who is with you throughout the test, even the one who died to pay for our failed test. And so on that note, as we begin to close, let us treasure up in our hearts three things to consider when tested. Firstly, remember God's works. Remember God's God's works as one theologian said more than Christians need to be taught they need to be reminded we are a forgetful people and you see it with Israel Psalm 106 specifically says that Israel forgot God's works but three days go by and they are grumbling and complaining and again how often for us it might be three hours have elapsed after taking the Lord's Supper and we are grumbling at our spouse or irritated over something trivial Faith, though, remembers. As much as faith looks forward, faith looks backwards so that it can move forward. Faith remembers. As Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That when tempted, when tried, remember your Savior, exalted, seated at the right hand of God, who always lives to intercede for you. Remember God's works. Secondly, praise God's character. Praise God. To set this up, just a thought experiment here. Proverbs 29, 6 says this. An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man, now how would you finish that thought? You know how Proverbs likes to do parallelism. One more time. An evil man is trapped in his sin, but a righteous man, what? Interestingly enough, unexpectedly it goes like this. The evil man is trapped in his sin, but a righteous man sings. I would not have thought that. The righteous man sings. He rejoices. The praising Christian is not a grumbling Christian. And the song of Moses teaches us that in spades. Let us praise the majestic, incomparable God. Mind being continually renewed by praising and meditating upon his majesty. Practically speaking, I hope you can see that is the great benefit in studying god's attributes god's eternality god's immutability god's simplicity and going on down and down to the list and you pair that up with the statement god is my god and that is a continual soul for a continual feast for the soul so remember god's works praise god's character lastly hope in god's reward hope in god's promise notice verse 17 ends on just that note It reads, God will bring them in and plant them on his mountain. God, as the great planter, of course, harkens back to the Garden of Eden, the garden that God planted. And here, God continues to promise to plant them in the promised land. You might have noticed they even get a little primer of that. They come to Elim. They go from no water to 12 springs of water as an encouragement unto hope. And, of course, how glorious for us that we have an even greater confidence and even greater hope that God is still the great planter and he plants us in a new Eden, a new heavens, a new earth that we are marching not to Mount Zion, but to heavenly Zion to behold Christ, the hope of glory. Christian, can you praise God in triumph? Can you praise God in testing? For he is the majestic God in holiness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you that you have put it into our mouth to say what we could never say on our own. My God and my Savior and my song, and you have become my salvation. Praise be to you for you are the God who has purchased us by the very blood of your precious Son. And we pray, Father, that as we march onward, that as we are tested and refined as through fire, we know that it comes from you, the hand of our kind and loving Father, getting us one step closer to beholding the King in his glory. And in his name we pray, amen. Well, just as they stood and rejoiced and responded to God in song, let us do so in kind as we stand to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.